The following program is being brought to you on the 7th Wave Network. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit 7thWaveNetwork.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. As spiritual seekers, we often receive guidance on which path to follow. This might be necessary for some time, but as we move along, we need to trust our heart and become our own guide. Welcome to Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us, a place where we can listen to everyone's heart. Your companion on the journey is Jill Asselin. Come join us now on this path of inner exploration. Here is your host, Jill Asselin. Good morning, dear Lyndon. How are you? Good morning, Jill. It's nice to have you back. Oh, it's nice to be here, too. Uh, it's been about two weeks already, so a lot of things went on. And um, did you have a good time since we last spoke? Oh, yes. I, I've had a wonderful time. Um, I've, I'm still on holiday from my – I'm a university teacher, and I'm still on holiday. So it's really good to get on with other projects, you know, when I'm teaching sure. my students really – consume my energy uh, in a very positive way um so during the vacation i can connect with other things you know so I, yes i'm having a really nice time <laughs> when do you go back to school so to speak i start tomorrow actually oh, okay that was good timing then <laughs> yeah, to give you some more work before you start officially back at the university yes <laughs> yeah. That's right. Good. So, good luck. I mean, say, the French would say bon courage, but good luck. Yes, bon courage. Merci beaucoup. Yes. <laughs> you were just sharing with me that you were feeling, feeling very joyful and that something uh, nice happened in your neighborhood not so long ago. Hmm. Yes. Uh, um, as you know, I live in Japan, and um, here in Japan, we uh, have international meetings with my Buddhist school. I'm a Shingon Buddhist priest. And yesterday um, we had a, a gathering of English-speaking uh, people. And of course there is a core of people who come every time and um, help me with setting things up. But yesterday we had, well, five new guests. How many? Sorry. Uh, <clears throat> five new guests. Five new guests. Okay. But how many people total? Sorry? How many people total? How many people in total? Uh, about 25. I'm okay, it's good. Mm-hmm. Really quite a small group still. Mm-hmm. Um, but I live in Western Japan, and so there aren't so many foreigners here. Uh, the same organization happens in Japan, in, uh, sorry, in Tokyo. And, of course, that's huge because there are so many more people in Tokyo passing through you know but um our group is quite small and um we've been always always trying to build it up you know but um, anyway gradually it's building up and yesterday we had this we had uh many things uh were very joyful yesterday we had a 
uh, a priest from Portugal, a Catholic priest who came, and uh, he's really fascinated by everything Buddhist, mm-hmm. and so he really wants to become part of uh, this group. And then we had uh, a really beautiful guy from the Ukraine who's a, a scientist, and um, he is a member of our group in the Ukraine, and now he's in Japan. And then finally, we had a Colombian woman who is a very uh, devout Catholic, but in fact, she was so moved by our Buddhist teachings that she really now realizes that uh, the Buddha and Jesus and Mohammed, they're all the same, really. (laughs) <laughs> and so she, she's very, very keen to uh, join the group and uh, make a regular contribution. So what was the purpose of the meeting? Uh, the purpose of the meeting was to <clears throat> um, bring different faiths together uh, and to, to uh, use the Buddha's teachings to um, connect people, really. And so uh, the temple sets this up, and uh, I, I run it. And I've been doing that now for quite a long time, maybe seven or eight years. And it's quite fascinating. Yeah. But I, I, it's interesting, Gia, because I feel, as you know, I, I'm, I've been a Buddhist seeker for a long time, but I now feel as if I've gone beyond that. Beyond form, um, you mentioned last week, two weeks ago. Yes, mm-hmm. I've gone beyond and beyond form. And so it's really interesting because now I've, I'm attracting very different people. Lots of Christians are coming to this group and um, they are really interested in Qatarism. So I'm ah. talking, to, yeah, I'm talking mm-hmm. to them about Qatars and um, of course, they don't know so much about the Qatar, especially people from places like Portugal. You know, Portugal is a little bit too far from the center of the Qatar um, uh, energy uh-huh. in the Middle Ages. Um, but it, it's really interesting to just talk about it so tangibly uh, from the stance of a Buddhist <laughs> so I, I really feel as if all the faiths are coming together. It's marvelous. Yes. yes. Mm. <laughs> Our Buddha nature, your Buddha nature was coming together in a sense. You know, it's the way to look at it. Everybody has a Buddha nature within or a Christ consciousness or whatever. Yeah. However we define it. But I mean, that's, that's what brings us together, I think, when we have the, you know, the intention of coming to a meeting like yours, I guess, or any meeting yes. where it's interfaith. And it's, I don't think you bring your religion, you bring, you bring your whole self, and it's much bigger than religion. Yes, absolutely. And in fact, I, I talked to the, one of the temple staff yesterday, who is a um, very high-level person. He's a good friend of mine. And um, he, <clears throat> he talked to me about belief. And he said that he was having a lot of trouble um, persuading Japanese followers that they can uh, elevate. You know, we have an elevation system that they can elevate because they don't have confidence and they feel inferior. Uh-huh. And it was very interesting because we, we talked about 
uh, the difference between believing and feeling. And so, you know, believing is very much a thought. Yep, it's a mind thing, yep. You know, whereas feeling that uh, belief is very much about expanded consciousness. And, uh, uh, you know, in Japan, we have a bit of a cultural problem here because people are really basically very shy and very modest. Uh, that's the culture, you know, Japanese people need to be very, uh, you know, to read the air, as we say in Japan. Uh, so they're, they're always holding back, you know. And so their Buddha nature doesn't come out. It doesn't come forward. And um, so we were talking about this problem. And uh, so I addressed that in the meeting to some of our Japanese members. And uh, I talked about the difference between believing and feeling and, and um, having all the deities and all the supporting help that we crave and we need in our expanded consciousness rather than I say I believe or I don't believe. No? So it was a really, uh, really uh, poignant meeting yesterday in many, many ways. Mm-hmm. Hello, Gilles. Uh, Lyndon, um what I found also when I was practicing some kind of Japanese Buddhism is that uh, most people, and not all people, but some people, uh, a good majority, needed an intermediary to be able to access a higher level or whatever, access to the guru, or access to the deity. Is it also your experience uh, practicing this kind of Buddhism and dealing with Japanese members? Mm. Yeah, they... Um because they culturally are supposed to uh, follow and accept, you know, which is a, a great quality, which we Westerners don't really have very naturally. You know? um, they, they follow and they accept everything. But very often, they're not in touch with their feelings. Now, this is a, a kind of general problem in Japan, um, I can say that it's a problem for me as a teacher uh, because my students are very reluctant to express their feelings. And when you go a little deeper, dig a little deeper, you, you realize they don't really have any feelings. They haven't connected with their own feelings, um, maybe ex- except in a very small family group or with one other person, you know. And so when you put them in a larger group, they, they don't know, even in Japanese, they don't know how, how they're feeling really. So what happens in uh, Buddhist circles, in my experience, is that um, the Westerners who are practicing can, you know, you can hardly stop them expressing how they feel. It's all spilling over, you know. Um, and so what happens is the Japanese members present become very inhibited and feel inferior because, yeah, because they're not in touch with their feelings. I think in, in Japan, the society is so uh, pressurized, um, conforming is so important here that, 
people really lose contact with what they actually feel. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's a problem. I see what you mean, yes. It doesn't really surprise me, even though I've never lived in Japan. But I think in this case, you know, most people are practicing something out they, they believe something is outside themselves you know it's like you, you're practi- practicing an external religion I, I would believe when um, I think the key point that I believe it's a belief is, is to look within and, and to connect with uh, whatever you call that entity the, the Buddha nature or the master within or or whatever yeah I mean they just don't have that kind of experience at all they're always looking outside because they're <clears throat> always watching conforming you know the, the the main philosophy of japanese people is don't stand out from anybody else be the same don't bring attention to yourself mm-hmm. yeah, this is big problem because it means that very often they're following a religion uh, for the sake of it, because somebody is inviting them or putting them under some kind of pressure to to attend or to practice, and um, of course the other phenomenon we have here is Goryaku Shinken, which is the um, benefit seeker. Uh huh. This is really quite a phenomenon here. <clears throat> Interesting. Mm? Because we had so many different denominations here in Japan, not only of Buddhists, but of uh, Shinto, too. And we have many Christians and so on. Uh, and so um, it's very, very easy if you're a Japanese person to go to a Shinto shrine and to pray for protection or for success or... You know, most of my students, before they uh, apply, take the entrance test to get into university, go to a shrine, get a blessing, uh, and pray for passing the entrance test. And in a way, they, they kind of leave everything up to the gods. Uh-huh. <clears throat> but they're yeah. very often, they're really looking oh, quite desperately for benefit for themselves or for their families. And um, that's a, a very old trait. I mean, it goes back hundreds of years. So when, when you really get down to it with Japanese followers, they really don't know what they're feeling within, but they know they believe in something because they can get benefit from it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it works in a sense. There's a, there's a tangible proof, I guess. Yes. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you know, uh, in Asia, as you, I'm sure you know, um, when I first came to Asia many years ago, I was really quite shocked at the presence of uh, money in temples. So, you know, always in um, a temple, there is a huge box of coins. Uh-huh. Now, in the Christian religion, we were kind of born into, if you like, um Money, of course, is present, but it's always under wraps. You know, it's you you contribute without anyone really seeing what you're contributing. But in Asia, it's really out there. And the connection with money and prayer and uh, <clears throat> benefit seeking is very, very strong here in Asia. Mm-hmm. 
I've seen that in so, China, yes. Yes, mm-hmm. yeah. Mm-hmm. I've seen that. Uh, monks selling candles or, you know, huge candles for a big sum of money. and Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting, yeah. It is. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, we have a bit of a bit of a problem here um, especially it really comes out when we have these meetings of international people and the, the, the westerners are all really keen to share their feelings but the Japanese can't do that very easily they have to learn how to do that uh-huh. uh, and so they feel very inferior and they say things like oh, oh it's so marvelous I can't feel like that I don't really feel anything Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure they, yeah, they do feel something within, but it's it's blocked or it's uh, it's not accessible. Yes, yes. yeah, mm. or they can't simply can't express it because, yeah, with um, words, yeah. Of course, the Japanese language, kanji and so on, is very compact, so it's and very uh, exact and precise, and so it's very difficult to have these kind of uh, abstract feelings and try to express them in Japanese. But, of course, in English, they can learn to do that. And many, many of my Japanese <clears throat> friends say, oh, I feel so relieved to speak in English because I can really be myself. I can really <laughs> say what I want to say, you know. And I can really start to express my feelings. Uh-huh. Mm. The, the culture provides boundaries, I guess. And it's like... yeah. Yeah, you don't yeah. express yourself in French or in English the same way, or in, in obviously Japanese or Chinese, so it, it's or Spanish. So it it makes sense to me. You know, I work in this field, and the, some of the concepts are not quite there sometimes from culture to culture. And and this is a good example of expressing feelings in a, which is easier in a foreign language, foreign language to the Japanese. Yeah, they feel that they are not being judged. You know, there's a huge sense, as I said earlier, of, of this kind of witness, this social witness that is always there watching them to make sure they're behaving properly. Mm-hmm. Um, and in English, and uh, you know, when they're outside that, they really start to relax. And um, it's really fascinating what, what, the, what comes out in the end. Yeah, mm-hmm. really. I understand also shame might be a very powerful... Um tool in a, in, a, in a very collective society yeah yeah mm. it's it interesting is. the way we we deal with that in the field of cross-cultural relations we look at guilt more on the self individual mm. and on the other side is on the collective side you look at shame so if you want to shame someone you you know you put him or her in a difficult position in front of the group yeah yeah and that's yeah. what i used to happen a long long time ago in um in schools, and maybe that happened to you in England as well, they, you know, there's a kid that misbehaves and you send him or her to the corner. Yeah. You know, he stays in a room, but he's in a corner. And so, uh, even earlier than that, I mean, he was wearing a, a donkey's hat. Yes, yeah. So this doesn't, fortunately, doesn't happen anymore in schools, but it's, it's a way to show how you put shame on, in front of other people. Mm, and I'm right. sure there's different ways to do that in, in Japanese society, things that I don't quite understand, but are very subtle. Very subtle. And, you know, most Japanese would never risk being Mm -hmm. shamed. Yes, it's a big risk. Yes, I I understand. Yeah. It's a huge risk. And so they don't do anything. They're very, they seem very, very passive Mm -hmm. uh, and very reluctant to speak up at all, you know. 
Um, of course, it, when you get to know them and they trust you, then you realize they are feeling things and gradually they can express them. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> does it take a long time to trust people or to be trusted? Very long time, very, very long time, yes. I mean, you, on average, I would say Japanese need to know someone for about five years before they really feel they can uh, skip the formulaic behavior you uh-huh. know, uh, and really uh, be themselves. Yeah, it takes a long, long time. Uh, I counteract that by hugging everybody. <laughs> <laughs> I'm kind of quite famous in Japan for, you know, when I know someone very briefly, I, I give them a hug because, of course, in our culture, that's what we do. We kiss or we hug, uh-huh. even if we don't know someone so well, you know. Um, and so by doing that, I, you know, I'm breaking down these barriers and I can feel these wonderful Japanese bodies just suddenly melting, you know, uh-huh. into... <laughs> melting or becoming so rigid because, yeah, the physical touch, I guess, is difficult to handle. I can yes, imagine that too, yeah. Uh-huh. Yes, it is. Uh-huh. Of course, the women are easier to hug than the men. Amongst the men women, are... yeah, yeah. I would think so too, yeah. Reluctant because, you know... I'm a foreign woman, you know, and that I know. is a double... Uh, <laughs> a woman and a, a white woman, yes, yeah, so it's, uh, it's interesting. Yeah. <laughs> but eventually, for example, all my temple staff friends uh, within Xinyuan, they hug me. They've got used to it and they enjoy it, I think. So, yeah, it breaks down a lot of barriers very, very quickly if you make physical contact with them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, fascinating. <laughs> Good, thank you very much. I think it's a good time to take a break. The Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Take us on the go. It's even easier now. The Voice America Talk Radio Network has launched our mobile app for iPhone, Android, or BlackBerry. Visit the Apple iTunes App Store, BlackBerry App World, or Android Market to download the app powered by Aircast. It's free and no registration is necessary. In minutes, you could be enjoying your favorite Voice America Talk Radio host, no matter where you are, in the car, out and about, while traveling, or anytime you can't be close to your computer. Catch up on the archives you've missed or discover new shows on the spot. Search Voice America at your favorite app store. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our wall. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. If you think you've seen online TV before, let us surprise you. VoiceAmerica.tv is online now. The leader in live Internet talk radio has done it again. Multiple channels, a state-of-the-art viewing experience, live and on-demand programs streaming 24 hours a day. It's exactly what you want, when you want it. VoiceAmerica.tv. From health and wellness to business, sports, and everything in between. Discover our new world. Visit VoiceAmerica.tv now and experience the future of online television. VoiceAmerica.tv. You 
You are listening to Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us with Jill Asselin. To reach the program, call in to 1-866-472-5795. That's 1-866-472-5795. You may also send an email to seeking at nurturingthegift.org. Now, back to the program. Hello again, Lyndon. Thanks for being with us today. Thank you for having me. And thank you very much for sharing your insights uh, about Japanese society. I think they are very, um, very enlightening. Um, I know that you also lived in, um, was it in Australia with uh, indigenous people? And, uh, yes. After you lived in France, if I'm not mistaken. So. No, before. Oh, before, okay. So you, had, yeah. um, you went from England to Australia. Well, um, in 1990... Uh, I decided I had to uh, get out into the world. I was very, very established in England um, as a professional musician, and I had uh, two or three schools that I taught at and I employed other teachers. So I was very kind of settled in England, and uh, there was this incredible feeling of complacency coming in, um, And eventually I decided to stop it all and I sold my schools and I just stopped everything. I sold my car and my house and all of that and I put a rucksack on my back and I I went traveling for two years. Uh, So for two years I was kind of out in the world uh, and I visited uh, 41 countries and that kind of thing. But on that journey, which was the journey of a lifetime, it really was. It was a kind of, hmm, I think it was a pilgrimage, really, which changed everything for me. When I got back from that, I was a completely different person. Um, you know, in Buddhism, we say that you, if you are a certain uh, karmic level and you have a certain amount of virtue from your ancestors and so on, you can live through other lives very, very quickly. And I feel that my life has been like that. You know, I have lived many, many lives within this lifetime. And certainly when I was traveling, that was happening a lot. Um, And one day I found myself in Australia, uh, right in the center, in Alice Springs. As you probably know, you can go no further south than that, really. It's the last point of civilization, so-called. And um, whilst I was there, I was staying in a cheap hotel and I saw an advert for uh, a project involving Aboriginals uh, run by the Rotary Club, actually, of all things. And so I was really uh, interested to find out more. So they interviewed me and they they took me on. So I became part of this project. It was a four-week project, you know. And so what we did, uh, there were eight of us, eight Westerners, as it were. Uh, We got in a big land cruiser and we bashed our way south. We drove solidly for 11 hours uh, because if you stop, you get stuck. You know, it's all sand. There are no roads. You're just skimming the top of the sand. It's a horrific thing, a horrific journey, very, 
<laughs> you know, you feel you're being shaken to death, you know. <laughs> anyway, when we arrived there um, at the settlement, we found uh, Ninja uh, and her people. Uh, Ninja subsequently became my spiritual guide, and she appeared to me in many, many dreams and visions and so on. And to this day, she, she still appears to me. Uh, my time with Ninaja was amazing. I, I Physically, I, I didn't spend so much time with her, but um, psychologically, certainly, I, I was very much with her and I was initiated by her and so on. Um, <clears throat> of course, uh, many Westerners do this. You know, they go and be part of a tribe or... Uh, a group of uh, indigenes or primitives, if we want to call them that. Um, And uh, to a certain extent, you know, it was quite a superficial uh, experience to be part of that project. But, yeah, something very, very deep happened between Ninja and myself. And I was spiritually initiated and I uh, was entrusted to convey her message to developed peoples. Um, now, I did this in a book I published recently called Easy, Happy, Sexy, which uh, is very much about my experience with Ninja and about her message Um, As you know, and I'm sure as our listeners know, for about 250 years, the indigenous peoples of Australia have been exploited terribly. Uh And uh, when I actually arrived there, I was so ashamed of what my ancestors had done. You know, they come into the country and out of pure fear... They kill off all the natives or they infect them with the common cold or some such thing, which is what happened in New Zealand. Um, And they start to try to civilize them by building them a little house, you know, um, by providing food for them, Western-style food, bags of sugar, butter, all of the things which are really anathema for, for indigenous peoples, you know, poison, really. And so, in my case, uh, Ninaja and her people, um, there was a group of about 50 quite elderly aboriginals who were quite sick. Most of them had diabetes <clears throat> because of eating white sugar, which they would never naturally eat. And a group of children who... Uh, were had been chosen to go back to traditional life. So the settlements are very much run by white white people. Um, but this in this particular case, Ninaja had decided that they would go back into the very centre of Australia, which is now Aboriginal land. Uh, it's been given back to the the people. Um, And so I was involved in helping to move this group into the centre physically. 
and what we did was to uh, go ahead of them with our vehicles and our uh, concrete and our wire and so on. We made very quickly shade shelters for them so that they could rest during the incredibly hot days, temperatures of 41, 42 centigrade. You know, it's the hottest place on the earth. So we would go ahead, build a shelter, and then they would walk very slowly because they were elderly and sick, mostly, during the night. It's a little bit cooler. And then they would rest in these shade shelters during the day. And so gradually we made our way further and further south uh, so that we could escort them, really, back to their traditional life. Of course, traditional life is... Maybe something you don't know so much about, but... I don't. Uh, <laughs> traditional life, if I can put it in a nutshell, traditional life is about uh, a partnership, an equal partnership with nature. And so most indigenes well, in Canada and America and so on, in South America, um, have this incredible uh, connection with nature. And, of course, in their creation stories, they believe that uh, Mother Nature, the Great Mother, as this particular tribe called her, the Great Mother, is um, the, the natural world. And in my case, the planet uh, was, has a male uh, persona and is called Father, Father Earth. So Mother Nature and Father Earth are their parents, and they then are um, entrusted to become custodians of the lands. Well, this means that um, they protect and maintain the natural environment uh, without any man-made help. Uh, everything is done naturally. And so... When a child is born, they are given a totem. I'm sure you've heard of totems. And a totem is um, their connection with a particular group or species within the natural world. For example, kangaroo or uh, casuarina, that's a very typical tree in the desert, or uh, sunsets. So they're given this totem and then they spend all their time in traditional life maintaining that uh, thing, that phenomenon, um, and making sure it thrives and uh, really preserving the natural environment. So in their traditional life, of course, they're doing exactly the opposite of what the white settlers did which was to totally change their environment and to blast through it with dynamite. Control it, yeah. And to take out uranium from their caves and all of this kind of thing, you know. And so for me, I was so moved to be part of a, a project to take them back into their traditional way. Of course, it's not an easy life uh, when you don't know where the next meal is coming from and mm. you're living in such incredible heat and uh, water is very precious and difficult to find um, 
And, you know, the rate of early death among people living traditional life, of course, is very high. Um, but on the other hand, Ninaja, my spirit guide, was absolutely 500% certain that um, the way white fella, they call the white fella, white fella was going on, that the world would be destroyed and planet Earth would disintegrate because of all the uh, destruction and uh, abuse. So my book, Easy Happy Sexy, is very much about Ninaja's message to developed peoples. And it kind of initiates one into thinking instead of as a taker from the earth, a giver, as a giver of the earth, a custodian of the earth. And um, actually Ninaja's full title was traditional landowner uh, of a tract of land, which is maybe 3,000 miles square. So she's one of the highest level traditional landowners. Um, and I was so glad she's a woman, <laughs> you know. And so, yeah, my life was completely transformed by this experience, as you can imagine, I'm sure. Ah, uh, Yes. So what, I assume you are searching for something, I guess, something to turn your life around, no? Well, not consciously not at consciously. all. Not consciously, yeah, yeah. No. I was, uh, like most travelers, you know, I was um, relishing the experience of, of being there with these wonderful tribal people, you know, and really loving the actual experience, consciously loving it, but... Unconsciously, I really had no idea what was going on. Um, I had no connection at all with um, Australian peoples, apart from having a couple of relatives who um, uh, emigrated here in the 1950s, uh, which was a plan which lots of British people took up. You know, you'd get £50 if you emigrated to Australia. <laughs> so I had a couple of relatives who did that, but I had no other connection really uh, with, especially with indigenous peoples in Australia. And so I was led there, like everything in my life, I was listening to something else, as we mentioned in the last program, you know, I was listening to something deep within me and unconsciously following that uh, and unconsciously going with it, you know. And um, so the greatest thing of all that I um, knew, I came to know when I was in that setting was how white fella lives always at a distance to direct experience because we always conceptualize things. You know, we have mm -hmm. a word and the, the word, the thing that the word is describing becomes that thing. So we're always living in a synthetic reality within our heads. And during my time with Ninaja, she really nudged me out of that in many, many ways, you know. I would uh, say, oh, 
oh, look at the sky. Look at these amazing stars. And she'd say, she'd very, she was very rough. She nudged me in the, in the ribs and said, what do you mean, star? So I said, well, you know, the stars up in the sky, they're fantastic here in the southern hemisphere. She'd say, those aren't stars. Those are campfires. <laughs> they are the campfires of the travelers. And, you know, this is really just so amazingly shocking at first because you want to say, oh, come on, you know, don't be ridiculous. <laughs> but gradually, when this happened so many times, I realized suddenly that, very suddenly, that, yeah, I was not living in reality at all. I was living in a synthetic reality, mm -hmm. which I created with my mind. So... I was kind of dragged out of that, and uh, I've never really returned since that time to that synthetic way of seeing the world. Um, the Aboriginals believe that when uh, the physical body is finished with, they see the physical body very much as a vehicle, uh -huh. or a vessel for the spirit, you know, when it's finished... Uh, there is something called the jang, and the jang, D-J-A-N-G, the jang. Jang, okay. Yeah, is um, the ultimate human kind of moment, if you like, because the spirit leaves the body, huh? and they burn the body, in a very strange position, which I, I, I won't go into now. We don't have time, I don't think. But they burn the body, and then the spirit is released in the jang, and the whole of the tribe is present, and they've built this incredible uh, ceremonial ground out of sand, usually. They sculpt the sand into all the uh, shapes they need. And then the spirit goes traveling into the sky, uh, and it makes a little fire when it's cold and cooks a little something up in the sky. So they believe that they, they can see their ancestors um, traveling through the sky. And this is uh, represented by the little fire that they make to warm themselves. <laughs> this is so beautiful, you know, and um, it really transformed my way of thinking and I was so I was so lucky then to connect with the Buddhist teachings in a very full-on way uh, because they are so similar these ideas are so similar you know the, the view of reality uh, that we can synthesize we can change with the Buddhist teachings Am I going too fast and too deep? No, when you, when you were talking about the experience about a spirit and the body being a vessel, I think I, I was thinking about the Cathars as well. Yeah, quite. And, and you see, you can see similarities. I mean, uh, the reason why we are on Earth and, and what is our mission on Earth, and that's to escape, in a sense, to escape this, this prison. Yeah, yeah. And... Buddhist called samsara. Samsara, yes. Uh -huh. And the aboriginals, um, they spend their whole human life longing for death. Longing, okay. Mm. Longing for death. They see death as the, 
signal that they have learned their spiritual lessons to such a, an extent that they can now be released and go back into the spirit world. And move so on they, to the next one, I guess, yeah. Mm-hmm. Ah, they long for death, literally long for it. So I'm now writing my a book about this, and it's um, bringing together these three things, the, the, the Buddhist ideas of uh, death and life, the Aboriginal ideas of death and life, and the Qatar. So I'm bringing all three of those together. My book is called Glorious Life, Glorious Death. <laughs> uh-huh. Uh-huh. I'm so enjoying comparing the three because they're so similar. They, they are to a lot. I, mean, I don't know the Aboriginals, but uh, do they also they have a concept of a mission or a purpose in, yes. in coming to life? I mean, in coming to live in this world? Yes, they do. They do, okay. Uh, their mission is to... Uh, act as custodian uh-huh. for, yeah. for their totem. So the totem their totem, just given to them at the beginning of their life, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. So, you know, if somebody's born with um, a koala totem, then they spend their whole life following the koala groups around, looking after them when they're sick, um, killing the older ones off, you know, to nurturing the birth of new ones. Okay, so they're, they're really following the, this group of animals, I guess. Yes, yeah. Interesting. But of course, the totem group is not necessarily animal. It can be plant. Uh-huh. Uh, it can be uh, certain aspects of the sky, clouds, certain aspects of water. Um, so that's their mission. It's a very simple mission very practical mission. It doesn't involve any thinking. <laughs> mm-hmm. They don't have to change the world in a sense. Yeah. It involves really practically working in the environment. And, of course, Aboriginals know their environment as the lands, the dreaming, the dreaming lands. Mm-hmm. And, of course, I was initiated into the dreaming lands. And uh, I'm so, I feel so blessed to have met Ninaja and to be able to receive her wisdom. Mm-hmm. So how did this experience change your life? You, you mentioned the, the ability of not seeing that synthetic uh, reality, but mm. uh, from, a, from a spiritual point of view, how, what was transformed in you? Well, for a start, I also longed for death. Ah. Grew to long for death. Because, you know, of course, as a, a Christian in, in the West, we are taught that death is a really scary thing. And, uh, you know, if we're not careful, we'll go to hell or heaven if we're good and this kind of thing, you know. Yes. Uh, so I think we're kind of, uh, the, the fear of death is ingrained, really. In the Western world, yeah, it's a, it's a good way to, to look at it. Yeah. That's why people don't want to die and stay young forever. That's right, that's right. But of course, that's impossible because we're living in, a, in an energy field, you know. We're living in a field of perception. And so, if we can uh, let that fear drop away, which I did immediately, really, um, we can live life in a very different way. If we live life without any fear, then each moment is joy, any fear at all, or especially the fear, fear of death? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. No, no, sorry. 
You're talking about the fear of death especially or just about any fear? Oh, any fear. Any fear, okay, yeah. Fear is like thought. You know, a fear is a way of thinking. Of course, we can have a physical reaction to that fear, you know, like, you know, fear of spiders or something or uh-huh. uh, asthma, which can ha- really um, in- disturb the body. But, of course, the body and mind are one, and so that's, uh, that follows. But I, I think that fear comes from the mind, basically. And there's no need to have any fear if you're really integrated. Yeah, it's... So, mm-hmm. the Qatar, yeah. Sorry, go ahead. I'll, I'll just finish that little bit. The Qatar... Buddhists and the Aboriginal peoples are really integrated into life on earth. Yeah. I see what you mean, yes. Uh-huh. Um, this is a, integration. I use that word integration to show that we are disintegrated very often. If we're fearful, we're disintegrated because the mind is interfering in uh-huh. our integration into the world of which we are a big key part you know what comes to mind i think for the past five or ten minutes is the concept of true nature yeah and i think the aboriginal people are very much in touch and and professing or you know their true nature in a sense yes which to them is part of the land i mean you mentioned mother mother nature and father earth and I think there's a, and there's a clear connection there, I guess, which is who we are. Yeah. But when we live in an urban environment, I mean, there are so many material distractions. Indeed. And, and will, I don't know if you use the concept of the white race, but I guess there's a big white race. There's a lot of competition. There's a lot of society that structures our, our life and that determines our, our demands, you know. Yeah, that's right. So the challenge is to... Uh, to remain integrated uh, with a, a million distractions around us. Uh, and, of course, we, living in the Western world, the civilized, so-called civilized world, we can expand our awareness through meditation uh, and so on, reflection, so that we can um, really minimize those distractions um, and step away from our mind, which is the obstacle to this uh, joyful existence. Are you, are you also saying that uh, we need to be closer to our higher self? I think it's an expression you used in our last uh, encounter. Yes, yes, I am. And, uh, you know, the higher self is really accessible if we close down the mind. (laughs) Uh Uh, And I believe that Aboriginals living in traditional life, of course, when they're they're not in traditional life and they're taken away, tempted away to the cities and usually they drink a lot of alcohol, they take drugs and many of them die in cities. In fact, that happened to my Ninaja's son, her son, uh, died was found uh, dead of drug abuse uh-huh. in a phone box in Sydney. You know, so this is really so sad. 
Um, but in their traditional life, when they go back to living traditionally, yeah, their, their higher self operates all the time. There is no mind. There is no obstacle at all. And so they live fully integrated in their environment. They don't do anything else. They don't have jobs. They don't have money. Uh, everything they need, they can uh, make, make from the desert, you know. Uh-huh. It's a very simple life, but it's a very natural one as well. Yes, that's right. Which is at the yes. same time, it's hardly conceivable for us Westerners, you know. So I think yeah. we have to find a different way to, to reach that, that higher self or to become integrated like you, the term you used. Yes, yeah. So if we can um, at some point during each day feel that we are a stitch a stitch in the tapestry of life, uh-huh. a really vital stitch in that incredible pattern of, of the universe, this kind of tapestry, you know, um, then if we can uh, focus on our key role in life by being in touch with our higher selves then I think we can integrate whilst living in samsara. And we can uh, live in a joyful way, uh, in a sort of steady line. We're not buffeted by the waves of uh, moods or uh, external influences. We're living from a very solid core. Mm -hmm. I see what you mean, yes. I think it's, um, we don't have much time left, and I think it's a very nice way to end uh, the show. Right. And that's what I wanted to do in a sense, to loop around and go back into this notion of uh, integration, uh, true nature, higher self, I guess, which should be a, a pursuit, I guess, for, of us in our, in our mundane and, and yet existential life. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Indeed. <laughs> no, I know it's not an easy um it's not an easy path to follow, but I think it's what I think what matters is to keep that path in front of us and to remind us, like you said, every day and to, to try to connect and and to live according to that true nature. Absolutely, yes. Um we as we said in the last encounter, we if we can um allow our Buddha nature, our true nature to come to the surface, then we are absolutely loving divine beings in our true nature. Mm-hmm. Um, and the more we can do that, and the more of us who can do that, then the more we can change this world. Um, my guru here uh, in Japan, my Buddhist uh, guru, Shinrikeshu Sama, who is the head priest of my sect, uh, has a very strong message about this recently. She says, if you can, maybe you can't do anything about the problems in the world physically. You know, the problems in Syria, the terrible things happening in Africa. You know, maybe you can't do anything physically. But what you can do is work to bring about harmony and loving energy in your immediate vicinity. 
So the people around you, your family, your partner, your neighbors, if you can make everyone around you uh, shine with your light, then eventually those small pockets of light all over the world, all over the globe, will amalgamate and, you know, we'll have a huge uh, transformation of this troubled world we live in. Thank you very much, dear uh, Lyndon. I think it was a pleasure to have you with us. It's a pleasure to be here, Gilles. Thank you so much. Thank you. Have a good week, everybody. Thank you, everybody. Bye-bye. Thank you for joining us on Nurturing the Spiritual Spelunker in All of Us. Your personal journey, assisted by your guide and companion, Giel Asselin, will continue next Thursday at 12 noon Pacific Time and 3 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America 7th Wave Channel. Be sure to tune in again. Music